You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Ed Freeman has lived near Merry Meeting Bay for over 35 years, where he operates helicopter welding, kayaking, and farming businesses. His broad-based background in the natural sciences includes over 45 years as an outdoor educator, some of that as a mountaineering instructor for the National Outdoor Leadership School. Ed has a BS in environmental science from Southern University of New York with course and fieldwork in wildlife ecology, glacial geology, hydrology, remote sensing, plant ecology, and snow morphology, to name a few. Ed has been on the Friends of Merry Meeting Bay Steering Committee since 1993 and became chair in 1996. Today we start with Ed describing the wonderful Merry Meeting Bay and the issues that his organization is working on now. Uh, Merry Meeting Bay is, is located at the confluence of six rivers in kind of the southern mid-coastal area of Maine. We drain almost 40% of Maine and part of New Hampshire through uh, down into the bay and then um, exiting through a 200-meter bedrock slot and on down about 17 miles to the Atlantic Ocean via the Kennebec River. So we have the two major rivers that come in and and meet at the bay are the Kennebec and the Androscoggin Rivers. Uh, The Androscoggin was actually a poster child for Senator Edmund Muskie's uh, Clean Water Act and is still considered a second-class river here, unfortunately. Uh, and then there's four smaller rivers. So technically, the bay is an estuary. We get a little bit of salt in once in a great while. Salt content is like two or three parts per thousand. The ocean is 35 parts per thousand. So all of our vegetation is freshwater vegetation. Biologists consider it to be tidal riverine, all these rivers, and, and there is a tide in here. Um, and then uh, geologically, it's an inland delta. So at low tide, picture all of this 40% of Maine's water going out through this little slot, which is called the Chopped, and on down, it's fresh water, obviously. At high tide, there's about 17 miles or so for the salt to come up the river. There's a couple of narrows below the Chops as well. It retards the flow. Meanwhile, all this river water is trying to get out, and it's essentially the river water backing up against the tide that uh, makes this freshwater tidal, and it's tidal, in fact, another about 20, 25 miles upstream to Augusta, the capital of Maine. Mm. And so in the summer, a lot of our flats out here, the mud flats, are so they're all bare to start with when the ice goes out, the bay freezes in the winter. I was skiing on it a few days ago. In the summer, we'll have a lot of wild rice growing here and uh, other vegetation. And the bay is considered the, it is, the largest staging ground for migratory waterfowl north of Chesapeake Bay. It is the second hottest spot for bald eagle recovery in the state of Maine, first being Cobbscook Bay, which is right on the Canadian border. It's home to a couple of dozen rare plants that live in our intertidal zone, some of which are globally rare. And while there are other estuaries that have multiple rivers that come into them, they are generally 
linear in nature. You know, Connecticut River, the Hudson River, not those have multiple uh, tribes coming in, but they're they're linear in nature. Uh, San Joaquin Delta is one. The Tigris, Euphrates, they kind of come in together. The two main tributaries here, the Kennebec and the Andro, come in on opposite ends of the bay, and then the whole bay is constrained, restrained by this constriction called the chops. And then you got the other rivers as well. So it's kind of like a big soup bowl in here. And what we call the residence time, the time that the water or stuff in the water stays in here, uh, can be quite long. The bay can be difficult to get out of. And that has major repercussions. If, for example, there's an oil spill somewhere or there's a bunch of development on a particularly a smaller tributary, a series of 50 underwater tidal generating windmills, 50-foot diameter right at the chops, which they talked about doing a number of years ago, and striped bass larvae are just drifting in and out of that, so getting repeated exposures. So mm. anyway, it's a very cool spot, surrounded by some of the best farmland in Maine, alluvial soil and parts of it. In the east here, Atlantic salmon, American shad, uh, alewives, blueback herring, uh, rainbow smelt. Uh, those are striped bass. Those are some of the common anadromous migratory species. Uh, anadromous being coming from the Greek to run up. So the fish that come up here into freshwater to spawn then go back to the ocean. Uh, two important types I didn't mention are two different kinds of sturgeon in the bay. And and then we have one catadromous, the opposite, lives most of its life in freshwater, goes to sea to spawn once in its life, and that's the American eel. If you are like me and you're a little bit more terrestrial and you haven't studied this part of the country, um, just opening up Mary Meeting Bay in Google Images will bring up an awful lot of stuff. And of course, going to friendsofmerrymeetingbay.org will pull up an awful lot of information to back up what Ed said. I fact-checked everything as he said it, and he's, he's right about it all. It, it is only hearsay, but you're hearing the right stuff. You know? Yes. One of the things that's really eerie is I think our director, John Davis, during his podcast, which was really early on when the podcast started, kind of threw a pitch at this very podcast today because he called for the American eel to be considered as a possible aquatic flagship species, a counterpart to the Eastern Cougar reintroduction. And here I am talking with somebody who knows a little bit about American eels. Can you tell everybody how that species factors in uh, to the conservation efforts that you guys are interested in? So the American eel just has an amazing uh, life cycle. Um, Probably a lot of people on the air or however you listen to podcasts, you know, um, have heard of the Bermuda Triangle you know, kind of down there in the Southwest Atlantic Ocean. And that's about where the Sargasso Sea is, uh, named after the Sargassum uh, weed, you know, seaweed that's abundant there and provides a lot of cover, as vegetation usually does, whether terrestrial or aquatic, uh, um, cover and and feed for certain species. So American eels and European eels uh, which differ only by, I believe, one bone in their body. It's been a while since I read about this. Um, both actually um, are born in the Sargasso Sea. The the um, European eels being kind of in the northern part, American eels being a little bit south. Um, they are bo- they're born from parents that are <clears throat> from a female that dies after she spawns, <clears throat> and they spend about 
maybe a year or so drifting on the tides with the currents um, along the coast here. In this case, you know, American Eel up the East Coast, but really from Venezuela <clears throat> up to Labrador is their range. And they look like a little leaf, like a willow leaf, sort of an elongate, flat, larval phase like that. And it is when they start to get a whiff of fresh water, and this is not necessarily the fresh water from whence their parents came, as a, as most anadromous fish tend to return to where they were born. Um, the eels do that, but that was the Sargasso Sea. Uh, so it's kind of a hit or miss <clears throat> as to which rivers they ascend into, but they, they metamorphose into the eel shape that we know of as they gain proximity to fresh water. And initially their little eel bodies, which are maybe a couple inches long and uh, maybe an eighth of an inch you know, or less across are transparent. And these are called glass eels. And you can see their eye, you can see their heart, you can see their lungs. It's kind of about it. And as they come into fresh water, they start to um, attain some pigment. And hmm. they start to start to um, color up a little bit and get so you can't see through them. And that's when they become, become known as elvers. Now, an important thing to know is that with the exception of a couple of instances in a lab, Basically, eels have not been bred in captivity, uh, not successfully, really, or commercially, certainly. And so, when you go to, a, if you go to a Japanese restaurant and you get some eel, smoked eel, you know it's really good, and I won't eat it anymore. But that eel was caught as an elver somewhere in the wild, and raised on an eel farm or ranch somewhere. Uh, typically in Spain, uh, could have been in Asia. So the little elvers come upstream, and <clears throat> in Maine, they stand a good chance of getting whacked by elver fishermen uh, using nets. South Carolina is the only other state that allows a commercial harvest of elvers, but South, uh, South Carolina um, has a, a minimum length of six inches. There is no minimum length in Maine. Um, maybe 2,500 elvers per pound, <clears throat> and they get about 2,500. The price can vary wildly, but last few years it's been 25, 2,800 bucks a pound. So you can imagine there's sort of a little bit of a Wild West elver fishery out here. Mm. And it's calmed down some, but in the old days there were people that got shot and stuff. There's, you know, it's crazy. So, so that's one way that the eels get killed. So then they, they swim up the river. Their sex isn't determined at this point. The further up the watershed they get, those are the those are the eels that turn to females. And they will be in the watershed for 20 to 50 years. And the females, which uh, when they're when they're sort of teenagers, they get known as yellow eels. And then uh, as they get older, at some point, they they get really large and they're silvery colored and they will then on some rainy night in the fall, get the urge to out migrate. And they're, again, they're called silvers. So what happens to them then? Well, they are interesting critters in that we have all these obstructions on the, on the streams, the rivers and Maine has more hydroelectric dams than most other States. 
a lot of non-hydro dams as well just sitting there, remnants of the old days when there were mechanical uh, mills of different for different purposes. So eels can actually get out of the water and take in oxygen through their skin for a little bit. So in where a dam may obstruct a uh, salmon, for example, or an alewife, um, it may be less successful obstructing an eel, but remember that if an eel does get out of the water and follow a slimy trail of its predecessor and kind of get around the dam, it's using a lot of energy to do that. It's exposing itself to mammal or avian predation, and it can just dry out. <clears throat> so it's not a good thing. So they live up here. They do their thing for years. They're scavengers. They eat anything. They're very fatty. Uh, so that's called hydrophilic, like fat. So they do attract fatty toxins, uh, like dioxin or like PCBs just as a bluefish would. And so then they get the urge to migrate and they head downstream. And what happens? They hit a hydro dam with a bunch of turbines in it. And most of these don't have adequate protection on the upstream side for to keep fish from going through the turbines. And they don't have adequate bypasses uh, as an alternative route to go downstream on what we call their out-migration, the same term for fish. So they get chopped up. Now we've not only just prevented that eel from spawning after, you know, giving it its one chance after 50 years, but we've just cut up essentially a vacuum cleaner bag, if you will, that has successfully been sequestering some of our most severe toxins over the years and is trying to leave with them so the eels can play an important role in cleaning up a river, which is not to say when they die, that's probably any good for the sargasso where they end up if they get there. But what we're doing when we have the the turbine mortality is we're uh, recycling all those toxins back into a relatively closed uh, ecosystem here, uh, you know, in the inland waters of Maine, where the eels would have provided a uh, an important cleaning role for those waters. So mm. and should mention, well, I think because my mind jumps around that, you know, I mentioned Japanese restaurant, but the first Thanksgiving dinner, probably not turkey, probably eel. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, they're very fatty, right? So Indians could take the the first settlers out there with a spear and they'll get, you know, they're curled up in the mud, sort of hibernating for the winter. Spear them and you get a lot of calories out of an eel. And it's probably easier to catch than running around after a turkey, you know. Who are wicked yeah. smart? <laughs> so, so you had to eels, work in a wicked smart there. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> it's just like us humans. We, we you know, we're we some clever, but we sure ain't very smart. You know? <laughs> so, so, hydroelectric uh, dams, uh, overfishing. Yeah. Um, yep. How does all of this play into the eel? Is one thing, but um, our overarching. Uh, goal here today was to hit on the topic of migratory fish restoration. What, yep. what role does the eel play in that web or network of issues that are sure to be there? The other fish, the other things that you guys are concerned about, as with the ecosystem as a whole. Well, well, like like a lot of um, a lot of these critters, particularly the the smaller, more plentiful ones at the bottom of the food chain, and hopefully you will remind me if I forget to come back to diatoms, 
Um, and, oh yes, I love diatoms and, and and plankton. You know, when the eels do come up into the river, when they're that small, there are you know hundreds of thousands of them, right? And it's sort of like when alewives come up, it's a herring, a river herring, you know, or leave, they're really a small fish. These guys are all pretty low on the maritime food chain and even getting into terrestrial food chains. So they serve important, important purposes for, you know, you're ringing the bell and, and, and dinner is served for somebody, right? So a, a great example is, well, even I mean, when they're dams, they typically slow down the passage, if not make it impossible for any number of these species. So what will happen is, particularly when, because we're, we're short of large, really large fish now, uh, particularly when there are outgoing small fish, there will be often introduced species like a smallmouth bass or largemouth bass or a pickerel, some of these critters hanging out, you know, it could be a snapping turtle too, hanging out near the obstacle, right? You know, it's hang out near the dam and food gets funneled into my mouth. So that happens with elvers when they're coming up. Larger fish know that dinner is being served. Uh, a remarkable uh, example with a successful, one of the few successful fish restorations here, uh, you know, localized, but, but successful has been the restoration of river herring, which by that I mean the alewives and blueback herring, up in the Kennebec River and up into the tributary, comes into the Kennebec at Waterville, which is about 17 miles north of Augusta, uh, site of the first successful removal of a working hydro dam in this country. There's a dam about 10 miles up to Sebastocook. It's got a fish lift, which is an elevator uh, to move fish over it, migratory fish. And these are mostly moving herring. Well, the herring run has been has come back so well that last year they moved about six million fish over that dam. Now, when there gets to be that many fish in one spot, these are adults. Again, someone's ringing the bell, and what who's answering up here are the bald eagles and the osprey. Mm. And uh, one of the things I do besides chair friends of Merrimini Bay, I fly a helicopter commercially and I do a lot of eagle nest surveys in the spring and, and now it's into the summer a little bit. But uh, one of the types of counts we do is called a flush count where you can, you know, just fly up the river and see who flushes off a nest and count them. I mean, normally we're counting chicks and so forth like that. We do a real nest survey, but, but if I, if I fly up this 10 mile section on the Sebastocook up to the, the dam there, when the herring run is peaking, I have flown in the middle of about 70 bald eagles or so. And that's wow. incredible. And normally around here, you know, we see eagles fairly commonly now around down here, lower, you know, lower part of the river on the bay here, Merrimeeting Bay. But, uh, you know, one of the things an eagle likes to do, which, um, course makes it a perfect national bird it's when it sees someone else with a fish in his talons like an osprey it goes and scares the you know bejesus out of them and attacks them and the <laughs> osprey drops the fish and the eagle steals it you know so yay america so so, <laughs> so up there up up there what's so cool is that there's so many alewives that the osprey and the eagle are 
fishing without harassing each other at all. There's food for everybody. And so, and, and what I say here kind of, you know, transfers to the elvers as well or to any other <clears throat> plentiful small species. The, 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 those that profit from it, if you will, are not only the, um, you know, the birds in this case, could be the bigger fish, could be the turtles, could be black bear, could be the raccoons, could be, uh, you know, uh, mink, uh, could be weasels. Um, and the connection may not even be a direct predator and prey connection, but it could be that, you know, the bear eats a lot or the raccoon eats a lot and it poops somewhere in the riparian zone and that fertilizes, you know, the, the vegetation there. And there's actually been a bunch of science done on this subject, and we actually touch on it in our current Friends of Miami Bay newsletter, the winter edition 2019, which is on the website, um, you know, in the West, where obviously you've got a lot of dead fish because the Pacific salmon are not repeat spawners as American as Atlantic salmon are. And so they die, and there's a whole lot of dead fish around. And Scientists have actually done, under some controlled situations, you know, looked at fertilizer effects from direct from the fish or from nutrients from, from scat, you know, versus moving away from the riparian zone and comparing rates of growth in, uh, you know, the forest. And, you know, the forest in that riparian zone really gets a boost uh, from these migratory fish runs. And the effects from that. Another really good effect is, you know, speaking about dioxin and PCBs and the eels, it doesn't make the eels very healthy to eat, you know, as you can imagine. Um, a real benefit to the early season uh, runs of alewives and, and, and to some extent the elvers, although they don't get that far. Um, is that these are really clean fish. They're, they're spending most of their time in the ocean. They're coming in to spawn, and they are being taken advantage of by the eagles here right during nesting time and uh, the time when they raise their brood so that the young are able to get clean, relatively contaminant-free food. So they get off to a good start, which is incredibly important, especially if you're a species trying to recover. There are parts of what you're describing that seem almost idyllic. It depends if you're the eagle or the elwife. True, true. Yeah, and it also, I mean, it's it brings up the idea to me all the time. Every time I see these uh, almost overabundance, um, though they're not, of bald eagles, and, you know, people talk about them in Alaska as if they're almost like pigeons. Um, sure. the, the success of the Endangered Species Act is not to be understated. We really were worried very badly about losing that bird forever. Mm -hmm. That is probably one of the most important conservation acts we've ever passed. It, it, it absolutely is. And unfortunately, as, as you well know, it often, you know, a species often gets listed when it's too late. Um, but, but there have been some really good, you know, recovery success stories. And, and this is one we actually were down to either no eagles or one eagle in the state of Maine. And we brought in a transplanted wow. uh, pair from Wisconsin, I believe, and it actually was brought into Mary Meeting Bay. One of the issues we've been working hard on the last few years has been on the Presumpscot River, which is comes into Casco Bay, which is where Portland, Maine is. And it's only like a 25-mile-long river, and it goes up to Sebago Lake. That 
25 mile section has had like eight dams on it for like 200 years, you know, hmm. but in the 1880s, all of those dams had fish passage and now basically none of them do. And we've been working to try and restore fish in that watershed. And what's happened is the current first hydro dam owner has made arrangements with two conserva- quote conservation groups to take that dam down, which it needed to come down anyway, because it's old and needs too much money put into it. And they couldn't afford probably fish passage. Um, because there's been a dam on site for like 200 years, the bedrock's been altered. So the consensus seems to be that just taking the dam down will not allow migratory fish to get up through there still. So they've got to do some sort of fish passage and the license requires something. So these guys, the conservation groups, um, and, and I'll mention them, uh, Conservation Law Foundation and Friends of Presumpscott River basically met for two years with the paper mill company, um, South African Pulp and Paper. They said, okay, if you put in enhanced fish passage better than the license requires, we will give you a quid pro quo of removing fish passage requirements at a couple of dams upstream for the length of their license. So the length of their license is another 34 years. So these two groups basically traded off the whole watershed for a few miles of habitat above this particular dam. It's like they don't even know the history. David Brower's greatest regret. Oh, I know. It's yep. it's like uh, history repeating itself. It's identical yep. to the yep. Glen Canyon. Yeah, yeah. And so, so where I was going with this was that talking about recovery of a species, that uh, there's actually one dam below this one that's going to come out, uh, but it's a non-hydro dam. And these same parties, um, or friends of Presumpscott anyway, tried to do another deal on passage at this other dam a number of years ago, and we interfered and said, now, wait a minute you're about to give away the rest of the watershed in exchange for, you know, like you'll get, you'll get a mile of, of habitat. If you take this dam, if they take this dam down, we actually state of Maine actually has a non hydro fishway proceeding where the state and fisheries and wildlife and department of resources can upon petition, uh, institute a non hydro, uh, proceeding that will require fish passage at the dam owner's expense. And why don't you try that instead? It's only been used like eight times in our history. And that's what we ended up have happen. And so, so anyway, fish are coming up through this little lower spot. And so in, in the current proceeding, a lot of the talk about the justification for closing off passage upstream was, well, you know, the fish just aren't going to be here in enough numbers, you know, until those licenses expire anyway. After the dam owner got its okay to go ahead with this plan, which is just the beginning of this year, they finally released their passage numbers from the lower dam from last year, which in the last couple of years have been like 10,000 river herring or so. So they jumped up to 50,000 fish. So given enough of a remnant population and given access to habitat, these species can do an almost miraculous job at recovering. And the Endangered Species Act, if not invoked too late, can give them that opportunity. And when you've got situations like I just described, you're selling yourself short to underestimate 
the amount of time needed for a species to recover. So for conservationists uh, of all kinds, working on all kinds of issues, it, it's worth repeating <laughs> that while you may be embroiled in a very, very long uh, fight for something, you have to have to maintain a certain amount of perspective, even if you're just in the thick of it. Maybe you're the, in the middle of a 10-year battle or, <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever it's going to be, but you never know what you're giving away sometimes when, you, when you're making deals. And I can see how this happens. I've been in these battles. I've known lots more people who have and much longer ones that I can imagine it's easy to lose sight of, you know, you're just working to get this thing you've told your supporters done. You want to get it done. You promise them we're going to do this thing. And you get so myopic and, you know, uh, tunnel vision that um, you can make some really on the outside 3,000 foot view, really bad decisions. Um, yep. With not probably darkness in your heart, just because, you know, you're, you're on mission, you're focused. In one sense, that's a really good thing if you're going to try to do this kind of battle. It's hard. And uh, the, the guys on the other side are going to try to throw you off in any way that they possibly can. You got to be sharp and you got to stay focused. But yep. um, it, it's almost and, like and, groups need to hire minders, people who stay a little <laughs> bit off to the side, or luckily have groups yep. like yours who. Yeah fulfill the same sort of mission and stop them when, when you see that kind of thing happening. Well, and, and that's, that's not a, a to, to, to move away from the, um, the dams, at least just for a minute or the fish just for a second. It's not a bad segue into what we, what we do at friends of Miramini Bay and how unique we are in that we, we do really try and take a holistic approach to the environmental work we do. And, and we're doing a mix of research and advocacy and land conservation, land protection, and, and education. And the way we see it is it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to protect the fish if the water is polluted, right? It doesn't mm. make a whole lot of sense to protect the water if the land next to it is developed, um, or, you know, or protect the land for nothing. So these things are all tied together. We're not going to, none of this is going to go forward if you're not working with the kids, you know, for a lot of us that are working in the environmental area area or probably for that matter any area, we often had a formative experience as a kid. Right. right. So, and, and, and I know, I know, I know I did and I kind of know what it was. Um, but we aim to do that with our kids. And so we actually happen to have a very active education program where we go into schools and talk about this stuff and bring in stuffed critters, taxidermy mounts. And, and then we have a couple of outdoor days where we get fourth graders from around the Bay kind of out and, getting their hands dirty and getting muddy and getting wet and doing real archaeology digs and making watershed models and taking different walks and beach sailing for different, you know, fish and so forth. And we, you know, we try and let our, our research inform our advocacy because it's really important that whatever we advocate for, we have the facts on our side. But a, but a colleague of mine who was an active fisheries biologist with the Department of Marine Resources just said to me the other day, I mean, you know, we don't know Jack, you know, he was talking about something new. He was learning about smelt, a rainbow smelt, which is a small, small fish that comes up here and people ice fish for in the wintertime and they spawn in the late winter and the spring. And, and uh, you know, there can be landlocked smelt. <clears throat> I don't know if they were by bucket or by, by choice at some point, but um, this gentleman was running into smelt up in the first fishway on the Kennebec, which is a long way from, you know, the ocean and kind of wondering if maybe 
did, the, did these fish actually out migrate all the way anymore or not? You know, and and we just don't know. It's it's called a food web. You know, it's not a linear <laughs> diagram. You know, it's it's uh, pretty hard to often tell how one thing affects another thing. But it really is an important point that you make. I mean, if you look over the landscape, the waterscape that you are on, and you have just described a, a biological richness that you know you got to really write down fast all the species you talked about you're not even you're just doing the tip of the iceberg stuff right right uh for us to make decisions on hydroelectric stuff or or anything we did it very very prematurely in every case uh you know (laughs) across the country uh all of our developments and everything we're completely not in in um consideration of what we would be doing to biodiversity and migratory patterns or anything like that. Um, It's a really good point. Uh, And so I think people are starting to kind of realize we went right into rockets and smartphones and everything else and considered ourselves the top of the heap without really realizing, and you get into this discussion with oceans too, even more so Mm -hmm. because we really don't have the capability technologically to even know that much about oceans yet. Um, we put all of that kind of tech and everything into going to the moon and things like that. We haven't really explored our own planet. Well, and I think, you know, we, we're in this sort of, you know, sixth grade extinction now. I don't, I don't remember the numbers, but, we, you know, we're seeing, you know, more critters have gone extinct here in the last, you know, I don't know, 100 years and you know, in a long time. And uh, there's been a lot written lately about the great, you know, the insect apocalypse. And, and I, I talk about that a little bit in our new newsletter also. But, you know, and that's, you know, related to the diatoms you know, or the elvers or the little alewives, when you're talking about critters that are sort of towards the bottom of this food web, you are having an impact all the way on up through. Somewhere the other day, I just read something about, oh, I saw someone someone testifying uh, in Congress, one of the new um, Congress people, about the effects of um, offshore oil exploration and the sonic so the sonic booms being used for that, low frequency sounds being uh, emitted underwater um, for that. And he was talking about the whales, which a lot of people have looked at whales, dolphins, and marine mammal strandings. But there's really great science out of eastern Canada that looks at these areas and finds that there's like a dramatic reduction in plankton in them after the sonic booms, you know, after the sonic exploration. Uh, and and the change in size of the plankton that are left. So, you know, here like the like the uh, like the eels, you know, catching them as elvers, glass eels, and then killing them on their out migration as pregnant females. It's uh, as someone in, around here said, eat, you know, eat, you're eating your seed corn. You know, uh, that's, what, that's probably what they say in the Midwest, right? So yeah, we say I've said that like six times today already. Okay, so, so, so yeah, so you're, you're attacking. Bad enough, you're bad enough. You get the whales, you know, and then bad enough, you get the uh, the diatoms or the phytoplankton. But man, you're getting both ends of the web. You know, what's going to happen? It doesn't. It shouldn't take a genius to figure that out. You know, right? But, uh, but we have, you know, our perspective is pretty short term. You know, and. And again, like talk, touch some hydro Quebec, out of sight, out of mind. You know, uh, clean energy and hydro are not to be used in the same sentence. You know, um, but you know, it's it's different than looking out the window and seeing a smoke uh, a smokestack belching smoke. But you know, per- personally, having grown up and spent 
time in northern Quebec and paddled with the Cree Indians and seen seen that whole landscape go to pot. It's it's really, you know, these things can have cultural impacts as well as uh, environmental. And you know, what what happens? What do you see when you flick your light switch? You know, Where, where's that energy coming from? It's coming from someplace. Well, in your work with these with the kids, um, I kind of perked up when I heard that because that's something of a theme that comes up um, quite often here when I'm talking to people from all over the place with all kinds of different backgrounds. And mm-hmm. we, we end up talking about that. Do you think that they're well, it seems like with you at the helm, at least when uh, you're around, kids are going to walk away with a little bit of a picture of what you just described in terms of a holistic look at everything, the inner workings, the webs, the the linkages, and not just just eels or just eagles, you know, or just herring. But what kinds of things have you seen come out of that? What kinds of interests? I mean, some of those kids are certainly going to go on to be business people, and they'll be great donors to organizations that are doing this work. But other kids, how many of the other kids seem to be turned on and have a likely chance of going into the business, so to speak, of of uh, conservation. Yeah, well, and I, and it's a great question, and and I I really have no idea. Um, in that we, it's not something that we, <clears throat> I, I wouldn't even know how to track that. You know, um, yeah. we we see them primarily at the elementary age. Fourth grade is when people kids here study main, you know, quote main studies and looking at the, a lot of the environmental issues. So that's sort of the area we target. You know, we get like third to fifth graders. Sometimes we go to an older class. But what happens to those kids? I have no idea. You know, it'd be a great study. Yeah, it would be a great study. Because, <clears throat> um, I mean, you, I, we I, have I, our anecdotal evidence. We've had our defining moments that you brought up earlier. Um, I think everybody's got that story that rings mm-hmm. the most true to them about when they were a kid and some kind of uh, thing impacted them, an activity or a place uh, or a thing or a creature or whatever, an encounter. Uh, you know, and we know that to be true about ourselves and we talk to each other and we know it's true about most everybody we talk to are professionally or semi-professionally in, in the movement of some sort. So you got to have hope, right? It's like, okay, some of these kids, I mean, if you're providing possibly that seminal experience for a kid, you know, that, that it could be the catalyst for those things down the line. It would really be interesting had somebody done a study already. Why hasn't anybody thought of this? Darn it. Yeah, it, it would be great. And, that, you know, I don't know who, who, who does those kinds of things, you know, but, but and, and how to, or, or, you know, you obviously have to track, find out who, you know, who was in school 15 years ago and came to right. Bay Day and where are they now? And you know, how, do you, how do you figure that out? Well, you know, so you guys that, have that history. There probably That's- are some... So Bay Day is what it's called, and you and uh, and you at least have that history. In 15 years, that you guys could do that. I wonder if somebody would fund just dripping yeah. through the records there and figuring out what kind of an impact in in those terms mm-hmm. uh, do groups like yours have when you focus on kids and get them uh, early and try to get them to have that that big experience. We go back probably um, probably about 20 years with this, so. So fourth grader is, you know, how old, uh, like nine, 10 years old, you know, so they'd probably be about 30 or so now. Um, Hmm. and I don't know, uh, if that's too early to, you know, be talking to them even or not. I I will say that on our board, we do reserve a, a spot for a student. We don't have anyone here now, but over the years we've had a couple of 
uh, different like high school students on the board, and they have been um, <laughs> probably better than any of the adult board members, you know, um, in terms of their interest and uh, just their enthusiasm, you know. And it's been a real, it's been a real joy. And you know, when a girl comes up to me during Bay Day and says, "I'm not going home. I want to be an archaeologist." You know, after just getting done with the archaeology session, or hmm. I'm not stopping for lunch, I want to be an archaeologist, or kids are all gathered around in a ball that looks like a tangled up, you know, Medusa <laughs> over a five gallon bucket or over a fish measuring board trying to grab the little stickleback or mummy chug minnow, you know, and measure it, you know, they're going to go home with that, you know? Yeah. And they can't help have and, an impact. Yeah. So that's the, you know, or they do, you know, they hear about these anadromous migratory fish and then get to make fish prints, you know, of alewives and of striped bass and so forth using our rubber. We've got, you know, a nice school of rubber anadromous fish that we made, you know, and they can take that home and hang it on their wall or, you know, in their classroom wall or, or say in a school visit, when we're talking about these issues about fish passage and say, well, how would you keep a fish from going into a dam, you know? And, you know, it, it's never more than about 30 seconds before a bunch of kids like, well, why don't we put a screen up in front of it, you know, <laughs> give them another way down. It's like, wow, bingo, you can be the next commissioner of the Department of Marine Resources. And, you know, and the kids are saying, hey, <clears throat> what can we do? You know, can we write the governor? And, okay, let's let's make a mural with fish prints on it and write messages on it and send it to Augusta, you know? Hey, that so, stuff works. It's proven stuff, time and stuff. again. Yeah. <laughs> it's not only great for the kids and their experience and, uh, and what they're going to do in the future, but it's also uh, very effective. It, it yeah. works. A lot of people, yeah. e even in the, you know, people we might call enemies during a battle of some sort, um, not to excuse any really bad behavior, but, uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're just as myopic and, and tunnel vision in the promises they've made their constituents and uh, their bosses and everyone else to get whatever job they are, are supposed to do done. And they can make bad decisions and they get a fish print thing from a school and it can just set off a trigger. I've seen that happen. You have, I'm sure, mm -hmm. countless times as well, where out of the blue, you thought somebody was never, ever going to even sit down with, with the likes of us and then they mm -hmm. they start to respond but thank you so much for uh uh being on rewilding earth and everyone listening you can go to friends of to find out more uh, about what this great organization does and find out more about this wonderful watershed so this is this is a quote from one of our favorites edward abbey um we're going to get their stinking dam we've got secret plans we're going to set up a laser beam below the dam, drill a tiny hole through the base of it. We've got underground chemists working on a formula for a new type of acid that will dissolve concrete underwater. We have suicide freaks from Stockholm and Tokyo who want to grow up to be human torpedoes. We've employed a crack team of serious Christians who are praying around the clock for an act of God. Long before it fills with mud, that Glen Canyon Dam is going to go. Oh, I haven't heard that in a long time. Thank you so much, Ed. Yeah. So we're still working on it. Thank you very much, Jack. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. 
Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.